Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of B-Side. Hello and welcome back to B-Side. This week I'm going to be looking at Devs, Alex Garland's other project, a limited run series that ran on Hulu. And we're going to discuss the implications of free will and the limits of science in helping us dissect or understand our world. And I think that both Ex Machina and Devs work in tangent, work together to look at what we might call the limits of the Enlightenment. This is something that we covered a little bit on the Planet of the Apes show, on the actual Talking Pictures main podcast. Here I want to delve into that idea a little bit more, and then hopefully connect it back up to Ex Machina. But I want to start with two very different works. Um, This first one is from Pierre Simon, the Marquis de Laplace. Um, Laplace was a French polymath, I guess you could call him, um, in the 18th and early 19th century. He was known as kind of the French Newton, and... He was very much interested in uh, classical mechanics, what we today would call classical mechanics, but also probability. And he developed these kind of Bayesian interpretations of probability. And that was what he was, that's what he was known for in his own day. Um, And I have here a quote from him, um, and this is from one of his books on probability, and what became known as uh, the Laplace Demon. We may regard the present state of the universe as the effect of its past and the cause of its future. An intellect, which at a certain moment would know all forces that set nature in motion and all positions of all items, of which nature is composed, if this intellect were also vast enough to submit these data to analysis, it would embrace in a single formula the movements of the greatest bodies of the universe and those of the tiniest atom. For such an intellect, nothing would be uncertain, and the future, just like the past, would be present before its eyes. And you can see here, this is, uh, Laplace is kind of defense of what we might call determinism. This idea that there could be this great computer that could take into itself all the forces of nature. Okay. This is this he wrote in 1814. The book is, uh, I got the title here, it's called A Philosophical Essay on Probabilities. Now this next work, I'm not going to quote it uh, just because it's, it's pretty long, but I'll reference it, is from Borges's short story, 
the Garden of Forking Paths. So this is like about 130 years later. And in that book, the, the plot is that a Chinese agent named Yuson working in England for the Germans during the Second World War needs to find a way to deliver the message to his his German handlers that this or that location is where the the British armory is that has to be bombed, right? And so he goes off to meet someone named Stephen Albert, um, the idea being that the... Uh, that Albert is the name of the place where the Germans need to bomb. And so if Yusun can kill Stephen Albert, and it's reported in the papers, that'll be the message that's sent, right? So that's the idea. He's going to kill someone named Albert, and that will send the message that this, this base or this area called Albert needs to be bombed. But anyway... He goes and meets with with Albert, and it turns out that Stephen Albert has a copy of a book called The Garden of Forking Paths by someone named Shoi Pen. Now, Shoi Pen is the ancestor of Yusun, and an embarrassment for Yusun and his family. Um, Shoi Pen had left his job in a bureaucracy somewhere in China and had decided to spend the rest of his life writing this book. And the book, to everyone who's read it, except Stephen Albert, doesn't seem to make any sense. It's just a collection of stories that seem to contradict each other. In one story, the hero is dead. In, in the next chapter, the hero is alive again. Um, no one could figure it out. And what Albert tells you, son, is that Soy Pen's book is about every single possibility that can occur to someone. So the Garden of Forking Paths is that at every decision, both realities become possible. He gives in the, the example in the story of Fang, and Fang um, comes to an intruder, and he kills him. Or he doesn't kill him. Or they both die. Or Fang is killed, etc. So that what the Garden of Forking Paths is, is a labyrinth in which each reality lives. Each reality is experienced. And I want to use these two works, uh, Le Place's Demon, his work on, on probability, and Borges' work on the Garden of Forking Paths as ways of introducing these kind of themes that come up in Devs. Devs is about someone who builds a computer, who builds a lipless demon, and the experiences of that. And the person who builds it in, in the show... Um, his name is Forrest. He's played by Parks and Rec's Nick Offerman. Um, he rejects this idea of forking paths. He rejects the idea 
of um, the many worlds that can exist and breathe simultaneously in this quest he has, which I'll, I'll explain on this podcast. However, as the show goes on, what we realize is that the forking paths, that the great labyrinth that Borges discusses in his story is in fact a better mirror of nature. It, it captures the way the world is much better than Laplace's demon. And I think that while I have many, many problems with devs, and if you read my blog post on it, I, it, I think it's pretty obvious. Um, however, there are some interesting things that devs, as, a, as does Ex Machina, reveal about the limits of science, of scientific discourse, and the idea of a foundational and complete knowledge. And I hope in this podcast, we could go through some of those ideas. All right. All right. Now, how I'm going to break this down is I'm going to do a brief summary of the, the kind of free will debate, the free will versus determinism debate, looking at some of those, and then look at where that intersects with quantum theory and some theorists who talk about that, as well as the different theories that are brought up in DEVs itself. And then lastly, we're going to land on DEVs and the statement that I think is both true in DEVs and um, Ex Machina, and statement is the wrong term, really I should call it a suspicion, that Garland, via these two programs, these two films, miniseries, whatever, that, that Garland has, which is a suspicion about this sort of Enlightenment error way of perceiving the world, of understanding. And it becomes, I think, a critique of understanding itself, the nature of knowing, of being able to point to a phenomena and describe it completely. And that is going to be the, the kind of the structure of the podcast. So let's get into some of this kind of free will versus determinism. Um, we'll start by saying, first of all, as you mentioned before, Debs is about the Laplace computer, a Laplace demon that Forrest, the, the main character from Devs, builds. And most of the program works on the presumption that everything in the universe is deterministic, that we simply don't have free will, that if you know the placement of every particle vis-a-vis -vis every other particle, you will be able to rewind the tape to whatever point in history and see an accurate depiction of that point in history, you'll be able to fast forward the tape to any point in history and see an accurate depiction of what will be. The universe is cold, godless, and deterministic, as far as says. Um, and so therefore, the film takes on, or the miniseries, I should say, takes on the idea of everything being deterministic. And you can see this in the way the characters perform their roles, especially Alison Pill and Nick Offerman, who seem 
completely removed from the actions they undergo. There's many shots of them just sort of staring at the quantum computer that makes devs possible in what looks to be a trance-like state. Um, they're not able to take moral responsibility, which in one case seems freeing, or, or we might think of it as being freeing, but for these characters, it seems to sap them of agency. Um, and so you can imagine that as a, a part of the, the, the moral conundrum, right? They seem to be bought into this, they've bought into this cult of the rational and completely descriptive universe. And as a consequence of that, they seem to have been emotionally and sensorily dulled by the cult into which they enter. So let's get into that, that debate because the show is taking an active part in that debate. And I'm not going to go back to the Greeks. I was going to do that originally, but it isn't necessary. And just to look at kind of the medieval age, going back to St. Thomas Aquinas, um, for Aquinas, will is rational desire. Freedom is the consideration of different means to achieve the end that desire selects. And for Aquinas people do have the freedom to consider different different means, even though there are limited means. This, I, I guess, would kind of accord with a common sense way of looking at free will, right? Um, no one would say there aren't different roads to take from driving from New York to Boston. Um, and you have the, the freedom to consider those different ways and you know you can imagine going to boston might be rational right you might be visiting family or something um and you have the freedom to consider these different different means but you don't have absolute freedom right you you can't just drive in a straight line there are such things as lakes rivers forests that get in your way, other, other people's homes and bodies. Um, you can't teleport. There's such things as the laws of physics, etc. So there is, is freedom that's kind of curbed by physical reality. Um, Scotus, who comes along later, another scholastic philosopher, um, he says that will, the will, capital W, by its very nature um, is nothing other than the will in the total cause. Um, and the total cause being that we're all kind of drawn to the good. And he believes in the, this um, universal idea of the good. Uh, that the practical advantage to us um, is that we're drawn to this good and that, that the practical advantage is that being drawn to the good is in accordance with justice. Um, and so... We want to do what's just, and we're, we're at various capabilities doing that, but we are incapable of doing things in which we see no good whatsoever. And so the good might be personal advantage, right? Something like that. Um, but he would say that, you know, you, you would be drawn to it for that reason. It might be sacrifice, you might want, you have this kind of Christian idea of sacrifice. Um, you could think of the spiritual athletes of, of the second century AD 
who would do these things like balance on a pillar for years and years on one leg, you might say this isn't, they're not drawn to the good, but they're drawn to this kind of, this greater good, this spiritual salvation. And so um, that there is, that we're kind of driven towards a certain end. However, that's, that end is the good, is to our advantage. Um, you could almost say that our will is curbed by that which advantages us. And we have different ways of, um, different ways of approaching that. And we get into modernism, and modernism is kind of Descartes and later, um, you know, maybe Descartes up to the Romantics, so up to like early 19th century Germany. Um, the modernists are looking at two different questions. And one is like, do we need free will if we're going to have morality? And second, free will is hard to reconcile what we know about the world. So I guess the question would be, can we reconcile free will with what we know about the world? Now, this is kind of obvious in a sense, right? Because if you're going to act morally, that is, you're going to do the good, you're going to do what is what is ethical, then you need the freedom to not do what is ethical. If you don't have free will, then ethical decision-making simply doesn't exist. It's a contradiction in terms um, however, as Descartes tells us, every idea, every action has a reason, has a cause. So if everything we're doing is causally related to something previous, then how can we have morality since every action I take is driven or propelled by something in the past or the environment in which I am in? Now, this is something that um, Leibniz, Spinoza, and Descartes are all taking up. So this is, this is a, an important idea in, in the modern time, in the, in the early modern time. They agree that free will must have two aspects. The freedom to do otherwise, uh, you could all this call the power of self-determination. So, you know, you must be able to choose to steal something or choose not to steal something right if you are if you are forced by environment psychological conditioning etc to rob then you don't really have the freedom to do otherwise you don't have free will so that's number one number two is um that you must be morally responsible for your actions, and therefore you must be a fit subject for punishment if you if you go uh, go from those actions. Um, so that makes sense, right? So if you're you're living in a world where robbing bikes is considered criminal, um, which most people do live in that world, or at least most people listening to this podcast live in that world, then punishment, adequate punishment. You must be a fit subject for adequate punishment if you have the freedom to not rob the bike. Um, okay, and so that is this kind of first stage of modernism, this Leibniz, Spinoza, Descartes thing. Um, now, when looking at Thomas Hobbes, David Hume, John Locke, all thinkers now are in 17th and 18th century, 
They all believed that if you have the freedom to other to do otherwise, and if you prefer to do otherwise and can do it, then you have free will. Now there might be impediments to you doing otherwise. Um, you know, you might want to go to Boston, but don't have time to, to make that drive, so you don't, but, you know, whatever. Um, as long as you have the freedom to do other than what you're doing, and then you select to do it, then you have free will. Um, and so determinism for them seems innocuous to freedom. It's, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't line up with freedom. You must have the freedom to do otherwise. Uh, so self-determinism, that would be you being able to do what you like, requires the agent um, for him to have, or, or her, a free choice and action so they can do what they want. And so that's what we get out of kind of Hume, Locke, uh, those people, that you have the, the free choice, free actions. Um, Hume goes even further. He says self-determinism is required for free will because the agent, not his will, causes the action. So you still have this uh, idea that th this person does it, right? So if John steals the bike, you might say he wills the stealing of the bike or something. Um, but for Hume, it's still that the... the it's still determined. It's just that it comes from the agent, not from some kind of necessarily external force that drives the agent. Um, and so there's this kind of idea of freedom, but not will causing an action. Um, now for Spinoza, this is a little crazy. Spinoza says everything is categorically necessary and that there's no room in such a world for divine or creaturely free will. Um, free will is non-existent, but he sees freedom, freedom of action, and self-determination as arising from the, the nature of reality, right? So what does this mean? Well, true freedom arises from the nature of the world, so the world we occupy, the physical laws of the world, and our feelings about the world being in line with the truth of the world, um, and when our emotions are determined by the true ideas of the nature of reality, right? So we have these kind of uh, ideas, feelings about the world, and the world outside of us has a nature independent of us, right? This is like the anti-quantum theory, right? There's a, there's a world out there... Um, independent of observer in, in Spinoza's mind. And when our emotions are determined by true ideas about the nature of reality, so we feel about the world, how the world actually is, then we have true freedom. Um, and so that, what does that lead to? The emotional lives of free people, and therefore free people, are those who desire nothing more than what could be. And so the, the idea of free will becomes kind of odd in that worldview, right? In Spinoza's worldview, because um, 
if you desire nothing more than what could be, it's kind of pseudo-stoic, then do you really have free will? Do you have free will to make another decision? It seems like for Spinoza, you really don't. Um, and there's also the other question of um, freedom kind of, I mean, what does freedom mean in this case? If you don't have the freedom to do otherwise, and if you do have the freedom to do otherwise, and it's in some way wrong, right? It's not in accord with the nature, quote unquote, nature of reality, then what kind of freedom is that? What, is it, does, what does that mean to not be free? Um, and so those have some sort of moral envelope in them, especially the last one, the Spinoza reading. Um, and outside of that moral realm is this question of um, the freedom to do otherwise, as we've covered. Uh, this is a problem since the claim that anyone has the freedom to do otherwise is hard to follow. But freedom is kind of intuitively based on the idea that something else could have happened or we have something, some power to do something else besides what could have happened. And this is more than obviously a question of ability. You know, I don't have the ability to throw a, a 96 mile an hour fastball, um, but I do have the freedom to go down to the park and throw a baseball as fast as I can in, in the ballpark down the road from me. Um, the fact that I choose to record this podcast now has to arise if I'm going to have free will, at least this kind of intuitive sense of free will, it has to arise from um, the sense that I could have done something else, that I could have gone down to the park and thrown that ball. Now, the idea that someone has the freedom to do otherwise holding everything fixed up to that time of, of the decision or action that one might do otherwise is captured by something called the categorical analysis of the ability to do otherwise. And according to this categorical analysis, if an agent has the ability to choose to do otherwise than a particular action at a particular time, if and only if it was possible, holding fixed everything up to that time, then the, the person, the subject, choose to do otherwise than the action at that time, right? Now, if that's the case, that is, um, if a person has the ability to choose to do otherwise than the action he or she is doing at a particular time, if it was possible holding fixed everything up to that time, then free will is incompatible with determinism. Um, because according to this, then all deterministic world worlds with the same past, the same laws of nature would have the same futures. So, Given the fact that everything up to the point of me recording this podcast is the same, I would have no choice but to record this podcast, right? Because I, I may have the ability to not record and go down to the park and, and throw baseballs, but 
everything up to this point is fixed. And so while I may have the um, I, I may have the ability to choose to do otherwise, um, given that everything has been set up for me to record this podcast, given that every action preceding this action is related to me recording this podcast, um, then I lack, in a very real way, the freedom to go down to the ballpark and throw a baseball, right? And so that is the categorical analysis with the, uh, of free will. Um, and so you could see that in comparison to more of a conditional analysis in which if a person has the ability to do otherwise, if and only if, um, they would do otherwise, basically. So, if you were to choose to do otherwise, you would do otherwise. And what that means is if I chose to go down to the park and throw the baseball, then I would choose to go down to the park and throw the baseball. Um, the, the problem with that idea, with the, the kind of simple conditional analysis, is that if you have two desires, then you pick one and that excludes the other. If I desire to throw a baseball, if I desire to record a podcast, by the dictates of this analysis, the fact that I recorded the podcast is evidence that I have no desire or a very weak desire to throw a baseball. Um, and so it sort of skirts the free will debate because it basically says, you didn't actually want to do the other thing. You didn't want to play baseball. How do I know? Well, you're recording a podcast. Um, often that does not get to the very heart of the matter, which is, are we kind of programmed meat sacks or are we kind of agents who can, you know, do things and whatnot? And so while the simple conditional analysis and the categorical analysis are both useful in terms of thinking about these things, they also seem to arrive at answers. I think from my, my readings on this, which I've, I've really only done for this podcast, so a lot of this material is, is new to me too, but from my readings on this, this doesn't get to the heart of what people are interested in, which is, am I really free or am I not? Um, now, in this next portion, kind of dive into some more quantum theories and free will um, and how those things intersect with ideas of consciousness right? and, and the hard problems of consciousness and how we kind of join free will consciousness via quantum theory. Now, I want to start off this section by looking at this idea of the, the hard problems of consciousness. Now, this term, hard problem of consciousness, it comes from the philosopher David Chalmers, who introduces this problem because we have up to now, according to him, failed to explain why and how sentient organisms have qualia. Qualia is a term in philosophy and phenomenology, and what it means is phenomenal experiences. 
that what that means is kind of like a felt state, an internal subjective experience of heat. You know, this might be different from, let's say, uh, a thermometer that says the temperature is rising, right? Thermometer rises, the mercury in the thermometer rises, we know the temperature is rising. Yet the experience of jerking your hand back from a hot stove, what is that experience? What is that qualia? That according to Chalmers, has, we don't have really a successful answer to that. That is the, the hard problem of consciousness. Um, and so the easy problem by comparison is how the brain integrates different types of information and focuses stimuli, right? So have these neurons, they connect to our body via nerve cells. We have this sense of touch, in our skin, we can feel something, the brain organizes that information, um, responds to stimuli, etc. One solution to the, the hard problem of consciousness is the reductionist solution. This is what philosophers like Daniel Dennett believed, and Dennett believes that all qualia can be reduced to the physical, so all phenomenological experiences can be reduced to physical occurrences, the physical ontology of brain chemistry, etc. Um, other people like Colin McGinn see that our minds are not constructed to solve the hard problem um, because the, the mind works by extending um, extending metaphors of macroscopic objects in ways that don't really apply. And what I mean by that is, or what I think McGinn means by that, is that we see things that are, are large. And by large, I mean tables, chairs, uh, salt, whatever, things in our, our real world, and that our minds are kind of designed around operating and using those objects. Um, there's something Darwinian about that, right? And when we try to solve problems such as consciousness that are based in, um, based in extending our perceptual apparatus to the very tiny, to the small, or to things that don't comport with the macroscopic world that includes things like stairs and lights and, and cooking knives, etc., then we can't solve the problem because we can't see it. It would be like seeing in five dimensions. We simply do not have the intellectual capacity or the perceptual capacity to see in five dimensions. That world don't exist for us. We, we don't have that ability. So therefore, we'll, we won't solve the problem of consciousness. It's, it's not something within our capacity. Um, Chalmers, though, rejects both the, the Dennett observation or the Dennett theory hypothesis, whatever you want to call it, and the McGinn hypothesis, uh, Chalmers believes in something called um, panpsychism. Now, panpsychism is very strange, and we're going to get back to that a little later too, but panpsychism is this idea that the mind is fundamental to reality. 
um, so that our consciousness might be a fundamental building block or even the fundamental building block to reality itself. And we get and we get into Hoffman and his work, this is going to come up again. Um, but that ends up being the idea that it's not that um, when we saw with with I think it was Spinoza who's saying that the mind has to comport to that objective and true reality in order to um, be driven to the good. Um, in Spinoza's kind of bizarro language that we have to kind of uh, uh, find the good which is outside of us and real and independent of the observer and then adjust to that. Chalmers and the panpsychism belief states otherwise. They reverse it, right? This is kind of a, a Copernican-style revolution. Um, now, consciousness is not grasping for what is outside, but consciousness is fundamental to the world outside. In a sense, the world outside is grasping too, or being um, buttressed by, or even formed by, in some ways of reading this, consciousness itself. He also believes in something called neutral monism. Um, so monism, dualism are, are two kind of opposing worldviews. Uh, monism is that everything is made of a single substance. Dualism is that it's made of two substances. And this mostly falls along the lines of mind and brain, right? So the brain is one substance. It's made of neurons that are, are interconnected. The mind is something else. It's this uh, uh, thing that is of a different substance and works in a different way. Dualism proposes that both are real and independent. Daniel Dennett might be more of a, a monist. I, I'm not sure if he uses that language, but he would say it's it's all of brain. It's all physical. Um, you know, a religious person might be a dualist. They say there is this world, this earthly body, and there is a soul, a, a different way of being on a different plane of existence, etc. Um, Platonists are also dualists because they have this idea of the form and the form, like the perfect triangle or something, is outside of the material realm. Um, now for Chalmers, though, he he has some kind of idea called, called neutral monism. And what this means is that the mental and the physical aren't different things entirely, um, but mental and physical are two ways we organize the same information. Um, and while the substance is not, it's not that it's mental or physical, but that applying those labels, mental or physical, is the way we kind of figure out the properties of different things. That essentially mentalness or physicalness are properties consciousness assigns to things in order to organize that information. Um, you know, these might also be called uh, property dualism. And what that means is that substance... Um, is of one thing, right? Substance is is mono. It, it, it's one, um, but it has aspects that are mental and physical. 
So you have a sort of neutral monism that is predicated upon property dualism, right? So this makes sense, that mental and physical are just one thing, but this one thing has properties that appeal to both brain and mind, right? And so it ends up being, it's, it's all one thing, but that consciousness as this, this kind of fundamental agent makes the world into this, this dualistic or, or property dualistic way of looking at things. All right. And so from here, we're now going to move into where quantum theory inserts itself into this conversation of consciousness. So in terms of free will and quantum mechanics, what we know from quantum mechanics, and these experiments have been proven over and over again, is that particles that we think of as point particles, as single objects, when we look at them at the subatomic level, that these things are in fact, operating more like a wave. And that we know from such things as the double slit experiment, which we're not going to go into here, it's just, it's just going to take too much time, that particles act like a wave and therefore they are not necessarily in one place or another, but they're probabilistically in one place or another. Meaning that they are most likely to be found in one place and they are not in that place, right? Now, until you measure them, that's when they take on more of a standard of locality. That's when locality becomes important. But up until that point, they are probabilistically located. So that is what quantum theory generates for us. And quantum mechanics are ways of looking at this kind of wave function of particles and and how to understand it. But as we know from quantum mechanics and quantum theory, it is very counterintuitive. Um, things being in a place at a time no longer makes sense at the subatomic level. So quantum theory attempts to explain this, but it messes with determinism in certain ways. And I want to go over that a little bit now. Um, and so what we're going to look at is the Conway and Cochin, or Cochin, I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce his name, their, their theory and how this operates. So it's a theory that shows that subatomic particles have free will. That's what the theory gets at. And let's get into this a little bit. So Cochin or Cochin, um, that his argument or the argument he makes with his collaborator comes from an earlier, earlier argument he made with Spectre. And this is the Cochin-Spectre theorem. And this uh, places certain constraints on the permissible types of variable theories um, which would attempt to explain the probabilistic nature of quantum mechanics in terms of a deterministic model featuring hidden states. And so what that means is the 
properties of a particle, certain properties of a particle, cannot have a fixed definite value before measurement. All right, so one of those properties is spin. And we're not going to get into all of this. I don't understand all of this, honestly. It gets very dense. But spin is a property of a particle. It's an intrinsic form of angular momentum um, that elementary particles have. And it, it's, it's a type of way that they move. We'll just say that. It's a type of way that, that they kind of move through space. Um, it has, in some ways, like a vector quality. Um, in, in some ways, it has different qualities. But whatever. Spin is, uh, is a quality that a particle has that does not exist, doesn't have a definite value until it is measured. All right? Furthermore, the Cochin-Specter theorem, it not only shows the results of any individual measurement was not predetermined independently of the experimenter's choice of measurement, meaning that the experimenter, his or her means of measuring makes the reality, so to speak. So if you're trying to measure the spin of the particle, the spin of the particle can be one of a range of things, but it isn't anything until you test for spin, right? So this is independent. So the uh, it, it's not predetermined independently. The quality, the physical quality of the world is depending upon the experimenter. Um, and so... It's not exactly this kind of mechanical, observable, Newtonian thing, right? This is, this is very different. And so the, the particles, according to this theorem, are independent of those who test them. So that's sort of the setup, right? There's these certain qualities of particles, subatomic and even, even larger, that do not exist until the experimenter interacts with them. All right. So now let's get back to Conway and Cochran's free will theorem. Um, and so the way this is set up often in literature is that we have a hypothetical, right? And in this hypothetical, we have two experimenters, A and B, Tom and John. The one I read was Bob and Alice. Pick your poison. These two experimenters are in two different laboratories, those laboratories are separated and no information can travel from one to the other without, uh, you know, a certain period of time passing. Um, but it's so far, far apart that the information cannot reach each other unless it's traveling faster than the speed of light. So the two of them and what choice one makes, one experimenter makes, does not in any way influence what the other makes. They're, they are cut off from one another. This should, according to Einstein, mean that no information can travel, as I said before. So, using that hypothetical, there are then three axioms that come out of, out of this assumption. Um, and they have these three axioms that have these weird names. I call them min, spin, and twin. Min is this 
hypothetical that I, I've just set up. Uh, it's that the two experimenters are 100% totally independent of one another. They can in, independently make choices vis-a-vis one another. The second axiom in the, the Conway Kachin is spin. And with spin, it shows that the particles cannot be assumed to exist prior to them being measured. And I'm sorry, not the particles, but the properties of the particles cannot assume to exist prior to them being measured. We heard that before with the, the Kachin spectra theater, uh, theory, right? The Kachin specker theory, excuse me. And then the last one is twin. And what twin tells us is related to quantum entanglement. Um, and this shows how twinned particles, which are particles that are, that are entangled, can be used to experimentally test entanglement. Right? And so twin, the twin axiom basically assumes this strange interconnection to exist. And so what that means is, what, what entanglement means is, are these two particles have, are connected, they have properties that are dependent upon one another, but those properties cannot be revealed until you measure one of them. So if one particle has, let's say, uh, what they call left-handed spin, the other particle will have right-handed spin, right? That's what entanglement means, um, now, neither particle has the physical property of a particular spin until it is measured. But once the particle is measured, then its spin becomes clear. But that also means the spin in the other particle, which is so far away, no information can communicate, the particles cannot communicate with one another, also becomes clear. And so that's what, what entanglement is, or quantum entanglement is. Um, and so from these three axioms, Conway and Kachin come up with their free will theorem, which states that if the two experimenters are free to make choices about what measurements to make, then the results of their measurements cannot be predetermined by anything previous to the experiments. If we have free will, then elementary particles have free will too. All right. So now this isn't really necessarily a statement about human free will. But what it does give us is freedom from the particulars of the universe in some way. At the molecular level, we definitely have freedom then, okay? Which is pretty strange. Um, it's, it's kind of a weird thing. And I want to uh, read this quote out. This is from Conway. And this is, this is his, uh, it's a long quote, but I'm going to read it to you. For the free will theorem, I assume that some of my actions are not given by predetermined functions of past history of the universe. Rather big assumption to make, but most of us clearly make it. Now what Simon, his, his collaborator, what Simon and I proved is, if that is indeed true, then the same is true for elementary particles. Some of their actions are not predetermined by the entire past history of the universe. That is a rather remarkable thing. Okay. So what we see here is that particles, in fact, have freedom. 
calling it will might be odd. I mean, I mean there doesn't seem to be consciousness here, right? And, and part of what we're doing when looking at devs and especially looking at ex machina is understanding free will and consciousness. But these particles do have a freedom that is divided from all previous parts of the universe. Nothing in the universe's history makes the spin of a particular particle, right? Nothing in the universe's history gives all the physical properties of the particle. Now, I might say this has to do with the, the laws of the universe, which are pre-existent. Um, maybe you could say that it has to do with people, which are pre-existent to the particle, possibly. I don't know. But there is a place, a, div a divide between the reality of the particle and its properties and the rest of the universe. Now, I want to join this discussion of consciousness that started in the, in the last podcast into this discussion now of will and freedom from past actions. Um, I'm looking at right now Donald Hoffman and his work, and he has a, a book out. It was out last summer titled The Case Against Reality. My evolution hid the truth from our eyes. And by, I'll just say, by last summer, I mean 2019. So what he argues, what Hoffman argues, is that consciousness might be the fundamental framework to reality. Now we know that time and space are not fundamental. If you zoom down to a Planck length, that's an extraordinarily small unit of space, um, the amount of energy that takes to get to this Planck length, um, it, it kind of causes a, a mini black hole, and you really can't see any further. You can't get down any further. It's also the same with time. Time and space sort of collapse at certain lengths, which means those things are not fundamental. Hoffman offers an alternative. He says, what if consciousness, the way we experience the world, is itself a, a kind of fundamental property? What this means is he, he, it's that consciousness is sort of like um, the way virtual reality glasses are. If you've ever experienced that or, you know, saw a movie in which somebody's in, in VR or something like that, um, the world itself is extraordinarily different from the experience of the person entering VR. That world is composed entirely of zeros and ones. It's then those zeros and ones are organized in such a way as to produce icons that are recognizable to the person entering the VR space. The person then uses those icons to manipulate the world. And so therefore the computer is designed around the needs of consciousness. Now, Hoffman proposes that our minds and our perceptual apparatus are like the, um, like the programming of a VR, right? They filtered by Darwin, by, by evolutionary theory, they allow us to see a world that is greatly 
different from how we perceive it and organize that information in terms of survival needs. How can we how can we survive? How can we move on? How can we spread our genes? Well, seeing the world as is, fitting the world to our reality, um, or excuse me, rather, fitting our consciousness to how the world actually is, doesn't help us do that. As we know from, from quantum theory and quantum mechanics, um, the, the world is not local. It's not fundamental. Things exist in kind of a fuzzy, superposition way. They're existing in, in many spaces at once. Um, and they kind of collapse. They become, quote-unquote, real or digestible, understandable in terms of our consciousness once we measure it. Our consciousness is what makes the world the way it is. And so what that does is it kind of reverses, um, it reverses the Leibniz-Newton ideas we talked about earlier in this podcast. Instead of there being a real world out there, a truth, and we are free when driven to that truth, right? When the, the mind inside our heads drives us to the truth out there, what Hoffman reveals, or I shouldn't say he reveals, he hypothesizes. The, um, the, the work to kind of prove all this still needs to get done. But I think it's, it's pretty fascinating, so I wanted to share it with you. Um, what Hoffman hypothesizes in the case against reality is that consciousness is fundamental, or as close to fundamental as, as we can experience, and that the world out there is what we make, right? That we make the world into a certain way so as to suit our needs. And it's not us who have to be remade or our, our consciousness, our mind, has to be made to some sort of idea of physical truth in order to be driven to uh, uh, do something, right? So this is another kind of Copernican-style revolution when suddenly it's not the physical reality that existed before us and will exist long after we're dead. Instead, it is the consciousness which makes the reality. Now, it might be too strong, though some people have hypothesized this, it might be too strong to say that we make all of reality, right? Hoffman isn't quite saying that. What Hoffman is saying instead is that reality as we know it, with locality, with time, with um, uh, these qualities that are we can manipulate and understand that are in three dimensions, etc., that this isn't actually how the world is. The world is vastly different. Um, but that we, our consciousness makes it into something we can use, right? So it isn't necessarily that we are uh, making a world that doesn't exist without us, even though it kind of is also. <laughs> it's, it's a complicated idea. But it's that the world is vastly different from how we understand it. And our consciousness is what is making the world the way we know it, Right? So that is how we start to connect these ideas of consciousness and free will. Now, if we are free, as we, as we heard at the, the beginning of this podcast, um, 
then you have a, a certain problem, right? Because we're in this world, the, the physical world, the physical world um, shapes us, it, it uh, programs us, some might say, um, it leaves us with these neuroses, it gives us these kind of genetic codes, and therefore to say we're free might be to, to speak incorrectly simply because you are ignoring then um, all these inputs, right? These, all these inputs into the person. However, if consciousness is first and the quote-unquote inputs are products of consciousness, then the starting point of causal chains might be consciousness, and this is a this is a real problem for like the Laplace demon, right? Which just says, well, um, in this very classical way, well, if we know where every particle is, we know where every particle will be in the future. Hoffman, and you know, quantum theory more broadly, kind of pushes back against that. Now, <laughs> with all of that laid out, we can turn to devs. Devs, as I mentioned before is about a tech genius or tech entrepreneur named Forrest, played by Nick Offerman, who develops a Laplace demon. He develops a quantum computer that can tell um, where everything was in the past and where everything will be in the future. The plot of devs surrounds the mystery of the development section of the company, devs, um, when one of their new employees turns up dead. Now, we know from the show that he tried to steal information from devs and Forrest, again played by Nick Offerman, has him killed. His girlfriend, this is uh, Sergey, the person who attempted to steal code from devs, Sergey's girlfriend, Lily, then attempts to find out what happens. She's suspicious. It is, um, it is obviously suspicious because Sergei is dead. The devs company releases security video which shows Sergei setting himself on fire. But she knows Sergei. He, she knows he's not suicidal or wasn't suicidal. And so she attempts to investigate what happens at devs. Now, as the show goes on, we learn supercomputer, quantum computer all these predictions, blah, blah, blah. Um, and Lily begins to learn how kind of crazy Forrest is. And the reason for this is that Forrest had, uh, at one point, long before the, the plot of the show begins, had been on the phone with his wife. And while she was on the phone with him, she was distracted, went through a stop sign, and was was killed in a car accident. And not only was she killed, but his precious daughter, Amaya, was killed. And so the, the devs program is this attempt to resurrect his daughter. So he wants to see her again. Um, he wants to see every moment of her life, etc. And so he has brought in this team together. His main person, the person who's in charge of this program, is Katie, played by Allison Pill, and as Lily's getting closer and closer, 
to the truth, what we discover is that, or what Lily discovers is that while devs can see into the future, the they're cut off. At a certain point, um, everything goes crazy and the computer turns to nonsense. And normally what the computer can do is actually project onto a screen a very accurate film version, we could, we could call that film or video version, of what's happening in the world. So if you want to see the face of Christ, you could do that. If you want to see Marilyn Monroe and Arthur Miller, at one point they do that. Um, however, presumably you should be able to look into the future. Typically that is against the rules at devs. But Forrest and um, Alison Pill's character Katie do this. They look into the future and find that um, that very shortly everything goes haywire, that the, the program cannot predict after a certain point. And that point we learn in the second to last or third to last episode, I don't remember which one, that point we learn is about 23 hours away. <laughs> um, and not only that, Lily, Lily Chan, our main character, who is played by Sonoya Mizuno, who was also in Ex Machina, um, that Lily is at devs when the computer goes haywire, when the computer can no longer make predictions. And so in the last episode, we're kind of walked through Lily's day, and Forrest and Katie know what it is, so they kind of are able to tell her about it. Um, and what they know from watching is that Lily comes to devs, she takes, they have this special elevator that's powered by electromagnetism that takes you into the, into the main frame, so to speak, or the main area. So she takes that elevator in. Um, she then goes and meets Forrest in the viewing room. She has a gun with her. She takes him into the elevator and then she shoots him and kills him. The bullet passes through the elevator, um, which causes the vacuum seal that allows electromagnetism to break the elevator falls, which then kills Lily. At this point, the, the computer goes crazy and they cannot see what happens next. So, Lily comes to Debs. Um, there's an employee out there and she asks him what's inside and he says everything. The reason for this is they've kind of finished the Debs program and all information going back to the creation of the solar system can now be viewed via this quantum computer. She goes in, she meets with Forrest, she hears the story of what she's supposed to do. They get into the electromagnetic elevator together, and she says, and I'm not going to quote it exactly, I'll, I'll do my best. She says, the problem with prophets is that they're false. And before the elevator door closes, she throws the gun away, breaking the causal chain. Um, the employee who let her in then hits a button, which causes the elevator to fall anyway, killing both of them. And they wake up inside of Devs. Devs has then kind of taken their consciousnesses somehow into the program. Farah says, you know, there, there are many worlds and the world we're experiencing right now is great in that world. Forrest is with his wife and daughter. They apparently haven't died. Um, everything else is fine. And that's 
kind of where it ends. And so what ends up happening is the, there's an expression, possibly, of free will. And that is Lily throwing the gun. And I want to see now if we can connect this to, to kind of some of this theoretical work we've been doing. Now, when we look back into the show and look at the ideology or the ideology is the wrong word, I would say the theoretical beliefs that some of the characters hold, we know that all of the team at Debs, led by Katie and Forrest, believe in determinism, that whatever consequences the computer has, it has to be deterministic. Okay. Um, and so in, in one episode, sorry about that, in one episode, um, Katie, for example, we see her origin story, and she was a, a graduate student at a prestigious university studying, uh, looks like quantum theory. And she's in a class, and uh, I won't go into the details of, of what the cl- what's going on in the class. Basically, the professor is outlining different theories. And Katie, she in opposition to the professor, opts for something called the Everett interpretation, um, named for the scientist who, who postulated it, but uh, it, it's also known as the many worlds theory. Um, and what it says is it has to do with the double slit experiment, which look at the blog if you're interested in that. Um, but basically at every decision, there is a, a kind of another world that's formulated. So... When you look at, let's say, the probabilistic place of a particle within a wave, that where a particle would be measured if you measured it within a wave function, each one of those positions represents a different kind of reality, another world. Um, and that's what Katie believes. Um, and so that by Everett's standard, each probability isn't a probability, but an actuality, an independent conceivable universe. Um, the, the professor in this scene refers to these as branches on an infinitely large tree. Okay. And you can see how this relates back to uh, Borges and the Garden of Forking Paths. That what Katie and what the, what the miniseries seems to believe in order to have this kind of deterministic worldview this rational, plotted, uh, predictable worldview is this infinitely large trees with many forking paths. And so for, for Katie, and especially for Forrest, the, the garden of forking paths is their means of conceiving of a rationalistic and predictable universe. Forrest has a little more trouble with this. Uh, Forrest wants a, a universe that is entirely deterministic without these multi-world approaches. The reason for this is that Forrest feels uh, guilt for his, his daughter and his wife's death. And if there is no other world that could possibly exist, that if everything he has done is determined by past actions then he is not morally responsible. 
And this looks back towards some of those free will arguments we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, right? So that if you're looking at, um, you know, if you're looking at Spinoza or something like that, then, um, you know, Leibniz, Spinoza, and, and Descartes, that if you don't have the freedom to do otherwise, then you are not a morally responsible agent. That's kind of the conclusion that those early modern thinkers were coming up with. And it's a conclusion that Forrest comes to. And Forrest doesn't come to it via, you know, whatever, rational discourse. He, you know, he is not a pre-enlightenment thinker in that sense. He's coming to it through emotional loss. He needs moral responsibility to be suspended. He needs a predictable Enlightenment-style world to exist. Um, otherwise, he's guilty. How these shows end up working together, or I should say this movie and this show, that is, again, Devs and Ex Machina, is my reading is that the work on language and consciousness in Ex Machina and this work on determinism, will, and the, the quantum mechanical details that go into devs is that both programs question the kind of the product or understanding of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment, as we know, it's, it's uh, the, usually the second half of the 18th century, uh, it, and it's kind of pan-European. We think of it in England and especially Scotland, but of course Kant is, you know, German writer is a, a big part of the Enlightenment. And he actually writes the book, What is the Enlightenment? So it, it is more than just a English-British phenomenon. But anyway, what the Enlightenment brings to the foreground is this idea of scientific inquiry, this idea of observing the world and using a kind of scientific method that is sourced in the early modern period, right, in kind of the time of uh, Elizabeth I. However, it, it takes off in this world that, um, that exists after Newton, right? It takes off in a world that exists after... Um, after mechanization begins to take place, in a world after Locke, after John Locke, um, after Spinoza, I mean, we could keep going on and on, but that the Enlightenment becomes, in terms of its scientific approach, a means of understanding the world as the grand mechanical design. That we might have a designer, Newton was a deeply religious man, but that the world itself and its physical properties can be understood. And that means if the world can be understood, the systematizers of knowledge can understand our psychology, our um, incentives, our means of being in the world, that in fact, all of it, all of it can be understood and uh, written down in some way. Now, it might be the case that the Enlightenment thinkers don't get there, that there are these, these different discourses, these different means of knowing that have to be carried out. Um, the Enlightenment doesn't finish the job, but they introduce the project. Now, 
certain thinkers in this time push back against this. Um, one example that comes to mind is Edmund Burke, who is the esthetician and political writer. Um, he's, he's sort of known as the, the godfather of conservatism. He was a political Whig, an old Whig in England. Um, between the, like the 1760s and the 1790s, uh, he wrote on aesthetics, but also very famously on politics, especially his reflections on the revolution in France of 1790. And Burke is a traditionalist. Burke is interested in tradition, what, what was in the past, as informing us. And he is somewhat suspicious of the reverence thinkers of, of the Enlightenment era had for science, for this absolute understanding. David Hume, uh, a Scotch Enlightenment thinker, also saw this, that scientific inquiry, the quest to document all for all, can only go so far. Um, and so there's this kind of strain of conservative thought in the 18th century that is suspicious of that strain of scientific thought that was a big sponsor of the Enlightenment. And Burke's inquiry into this resonates with both the Frankfurt School and the postmodern movement, um, two intellectual movements of the latter half of the 20th century, which are also interested in unpacking scientific discourse, unpacking this idea of truth, capital T, with an understanding that science itself is discursively articulated, that science is not kind of this independent truth, but somehow predicated upon social systems and upon the people who do science, right? And so this seems a little familiar in terms of quantum theory and what happens with quantum theory, and especially with the work of Hoffman that we, we ended that portion of the podcast on, is that both of them make clear the impossibility of prediction or the impossibility of a fundamental understanding of the world. In the case of quantum theory, we can't make exact classical predictions, classical predictions being um, from Newton, uh, Newton-derived, so that, you know, if you hit a ball with so much force at a particular angle, we can predict with exactness where the, the ball is going to land, if we know the weight and the, the force of gravity, etc. If we know all the variables, we can know exactly where the ball will land when it is struck. Quantum lets us know the world is more or less probabilistic. Locality is not fundamental. Hoffman lets us know that possibly the world itself as we know it is not fundamental, that it may be um, an experience, a qualia, that consciousness has adapted in this kind of Darwinian lineage. Um, what we get from ex machina, is that consciousness itself is something that cannot be necessarily articulated. We never get an articulation of consciousness, but consciousness is what consciousness does. And here in Devs, what we learn is that uh, causal chains, deterministic causal chains, are not necessarily something that we can reject outright, um, maybe they're true, but that there's something deeply suspicious about them. 
And so my reading of devs, as is my reading of Ex Machina, is that both the enlightenment error push out of the darkness, right? This this hope in science, this faith in science, as well as this older idea of faith, um, faith as we would normally understand the term, right? This kind of belief in religion, that both of these things garland subjects to speculation. He takes kind of this position, I think, of the agnostic, dissecting both of them. However, what's, I think, very, very intelligent, both about Ex Machina and Devs, is that he recognizes that our relationship to science, which in these projects, science is represented by the, the tech genius or the tech entrepreneur, Forrest Nathan. In both cases, these tech entrepreneurs, these tech geniuses stand in for a sort of divine figure or a figure of faith. Now, towards the end of Devs, we learn that Devs, spelled D-E-V-S, was often in its conception referred to as Deus, D-E-U-S, the V then being a Roman V, which is pronounced like a U. Deus, of course, means God, and it's the missing word from the phrase Deus Ex Machina in the title of Garland's first film, Ex Machina. It's telling that Ex Machina is missing God, and in the film we see uh, our main character, Ava, kill her creator, kill Nathan, kill her God. However, we also never get an understanding exactly of consciousness. This is a movie deeply suspicious of the scientific um, salvation possibilities that science can make consciousness, that we can even use science to identify what consciousness is, and yet it is also suspicious of that kind of religious devotion. In fact, I think it is overlaying them. I think it is seeing this this new thing, this new devotion to science begun in the Enlightenment, and it is it is suspicious of that. We see this also with devs, with this idea that science can predict everything and lead us into this kind of postmodern existential malaise. But what ends up happening is we learn that Lily can throw the gun, that the machine, that the god that these characters worship, and it's interesting to, to watch the film, the music has a sort of religious plain chant feel to it. And the characters look at the, the dev's machine, the quantum computer, with this kind of blank devotional respect. It's very strange. But I think what Garland is saying is that in both instances... The Enlightenment has not saved us from the meta-narratives of religion, but in fact substituted it for the meta-narratives of science. And in our own modern age, our 21st century age, that has been kind of combined with these um, tech genius types. So where does this leave us then? If everything that these films has given us is able to be dissected, or the films themselves dissect the science that they're sponsoring, 
what we learn then from from these movies or what the theory of these movies seems to be is that unknowing or lack of knowing is going to be okay and that in fact individuality or the agency of the individual often considered a a development of the enlightenment I, i disagree with that conclusion but the idea of the individual is a consideration not just a a fact that the individual be it lily be it ava must find a sense of freedom as an individual or within their individuality though we may be determined or though we may have free will the belief in the self or the agency of the self seems to be what both of these movies are doing, both of these programs are doing. Therefore, the deus ex machina, which used to be, it meant God out of the machine, and it was a technique in Greek theater by which a God would show up and kind of set right things. The God would come in literally on a crane, that was the the machine in the quote, and um, kind of set things right. You know, it was sort of like, uh, we see this in movie scripts now, where a mysterious figure or some kind of force that was not in the script suddenly comes onto the screen and and fixes the problem. Um, But here, it seems like the, the god out of the machine or the saving grace is the the individual agency, not the explanation that the Enlightenment can offer, the detailing of the world, but in fact, the individual as free from those discourses. It's really kind of a Burkean individual, to go back to Edmund Burke, someone who sees the individual set against the the modern um rationalistic or imperialistic world and lives on with those things that he or she find precious. For Burke, this is tradition. For um, other people, it might might be something else. It might be family. It might be uh, a particular aspect of their culture. Um, You know, it it might be a, a type of behavior sport activity that they enjoy but what these movies do is respect science i think while remaining entirely suspicious of it they have a sort of pre-modern and postmodern view of the scientific discourse and i think ultimately seeing that connection between free will and how difficult it is to even define free will. And then consciousness, the awareness, and how hard it is to even define consciousness vis-a-vis reality, or do we even know that there is a reality independent of consciousness, right? That the difficulties of these questions allow us to use the works of Alex Garland to kind of... um, look back at the world, not as that which we can explain, but which can still be precious to us. I think, uh, you know, ending this by returning again to 
the Garden of Forking Paths. Borges' story is often considered postmodern. It, it's beyond the modernist um, capture of the world as is, that sort of post-World War I encounter with uh, the kind of monster of reality. Borges' work is, it's fun, it's interesting, it creates puzzles in language that often have no explanation or register infinity within them, um, which escapes the, the imagination, right? Infinity is that which is beyond what we can think of. And I think that Devs and Ex Machina, well, not nearly as brilliant as Borges, nor are necessarily working in that kind of playful postmodern tradition, are both rejecting what we in our modern era think of as advancement. Um, they do it in kind of a somber, serious way. Um, Borges does it in this kind of playful paradoxical way but I think in a sense what Garland is giving us in these two works and also in his his film Annihilation is a reality that meets the limits of science and that reality actually in one way in one way is our own mind our own consciousness which seems to be that which gives us reality but also upon further exploration, may be the hardest thing to explain about reality. Thank you for listening. This is Tom with B-Side.